Hello and welcome to this week's Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law & Sport. In this week's show, I'll be speaking to the athlete's lawyer, Howard Jacobs, about the third draft of the revised Wilder Code and what his take on some of the amendments are from the last revision. Howard is well placed to talk about the revised Wilder Code, having represented over 140 professional athletes, Olympic athletes and amateur athletes in disputes involving doping. But Howard, thank you very much for joining me. Um, you've looked at the third draft of the revised code. What are, your, what are the sort of the highlights for you on there? Uh, things that we should be aware of? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, to me, first reading through the, I guess this is the third draft, one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised by is the, I think there were a lot of good changes compared to the second draft, and, and it seems as though... Um, WADA has listened to a lot of the concerns in the second draft, you know, particularly I, I think back to the, the Tackling Doping and Sport Conference in, in London last year where this issue came up and there were roundtables and there were a lot of uh, concerns that were put forward and discussed and debated. And I know UK Anti-Doping said they were going to basically take that and report it to WADA the following week. And and it seems as though a lot of those concerns have been addressed, at least in part. So I, I would definitely say for athletes, the third draft is, is better than the second. I mean, I think there's still some concerns. You can tell from reading the draft, at least I can, that I think WADA is, I mean, they are legitimately concerned about differentiating between intentional dopers and those inadvertent positives that we see so many of. Um, my concern is that there's still areas where either there's ambiguities or there's there's areas where the inadvertent uh, positive tests can still end up with penalties the same as <clears throat> intentional dopers. And you know, increasing the the default sanction in many cases to four years is definitely concerning. So, what would you say then are the the positives then so if we're looking at the sort of comparing now the current code to the revised code what what or what have wilder listened to and said okay that's a valid concern we want to make sure that we we give athletes especially those who have inadvertently doped a fairer sanction the one section that i think is great that was in draft two and stayed in draft three is the new rule specific to contaminated products it's uh, 10.5.1.2 which says that um, if an athlete can establish that his positive test came from a contaminated product like a supplement or a vitamin or something like that and can establish no significant fault or negligence, then the period of ineligibility, instead of being two years with the possibility of reduction down to a year, now it's, it's a sanction range of zero to two years. So basically, contaminated supplements are going to be treated the same as, as specified substances. And to me, this was or is in the current draft one of the, I think, one of the more ridiculous problems with the current code because, if you, and I've, I've said this before, take two athletes, say that they do the exact same research and they both decide to take a protein powder. Um, one takes brand X and one takes brand Y, and they, they literally 
followed the same exact research. They both say they both contact the companies. They get the same assurances. <clears throat> Basically, if you do their table chart of diligence, it's exactly the same. And let's say both of those athletes test positive. One tests positive for a steroid. One tests positive for a, a stimulant, say, in competitions. And and they both test their protein powders and and say protein powder X is contaminated with the stimulant and protein powder Y is contaminated with the steroid. Under the current code, the the athlete that had the contaminated protein powder that's contaminated with the stimulant can get a penalty all the way down to a warning, whereas the athlete who has the contaminated protein powder that's contaminated with the steroid, his shortest possible suspension or her shortest possible suspension is a year, which I always thought was crazy because if you look at the conduct, they did the exact same thing. And, I mean, neither of them knew that it was contaminated, obviously, and, and just the, the sheer luck or or unluckiness of one that it's contaminated with one substance versus another. And and, and just for the for the clarity of our, our listeners who who maybe aren't so familiar with the anti-doping code, this is, comes down to the specified substances. They they've generally been described as substances that are more susceptible susceptible to inadvertent uh, positive. And so initially there was a defined list in the first draft first version of the code said these things are specified. And then they changed it and said everything is specified except the things that we say are not. So the, so the way that it's currently written, basically, I mean, to generalize, anything can be a specified substance except for steroids, certain named stimulants, uh, EPO, prohibited methods like uh, blood doping and uh, those sorts of things. But any diuretic, most um, stimulants, uh, those types of things that you're going to see inadvertent positives more often from. Instead of having the situation where it's a two-year sanction and if you have any fault at all, it can only be reduced to a year, the specified substance rule says your sanction range is anywhere from zero to two years depending on the level of fault that you have. Do you think through this process that athletes have become better informed about the risk of supplements and with, with some of the the case that has been built up over the number of years now. Um, do you think they're more aware about this and going forward they'll be taking more precautions or, or you know, going through certain suppliers through the clean sport program or through one of the others where they can actually trace the particular batches of the substance that they've taken? I wish I could say yes, I think that they're much more informed, but I... I... I don't know that that's actually the case. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, the Jamaican cases that are in the press now, I mean, those are appear, at least if what you read is accurate, to be supplement-related cases. I mean, I, I personally still see as many cases that are supplement-related as I ever have. It's just they're, the nature of the cases has changed. You know, it used to be that there was a lot more there were a lot more cases of contamination where you took a vitamin and it was contaminated with a steroid or and there those cases still exist but you know at least in the US it used to be that a lot of these banned steroids or steroid precursors were available over the counter uh in supplements so because the supplement companies were were able to sell them if their quality control wasn't good 
then it was, you know, it was a lot easier to get contamination. So now I think the contamination cases you see are more likely contamination in the raw materials as opposed to contamination during the encapsulation process or something like that. But but what you're seeing more today, or at least what I'm seeing a lot more today, is athletes who take a supplement and they, they actually look at the label, but they don't realize that <clears throat> what's listed is banned because a lot of times the the supplement companies, they uh, either intentionally or not, they don't do a very good job of describing what the product actually is. So, you know, the methylhexanamine cases that there have been so many of, um, you know, you almost never see a supplement that says methylhexanamine on the label. It'll say one of ten other different things. It'll say geranium or geranium stem oil or some, you know, one comma three dimethyl pentylamine or and all these things that are not methylhexanamine. If you Google them now, you'll you probably find out reasonably quickly that it, it's the same substance. But you know, as as the methylhexanamine cases die off, they're just going to be replaced by something else. You know, the supplement companies are going to move on to some other substance. They are going to describe it however they describe it. My favorite is when they just have uh, the primary ingredient is proprietary blend. And uh, what other what other things sort of stand out for you then? Uh, some of the things that that I like uh, as far as changes from the second draft of the new code to the third. Um, you know, I was really concerned in the second draft with the language in uh, Article 10.2, which dealt with the length of sanction for basically most cases, your cases where you have a positive test. And I was concerned that that you were going to end up with a lot of athletes that, you know, didn't intentionally take a substance but can't figure out where it came from. You know, let's let's assume a hypothetical athlete and assume that that athlete absolutely did not intend to cheat. Um, and they test positive, and they have no idea why. So they test all their supplements, but say there was a delay in them being notified because of the testing process. So they don't have all of the supplements they were taking. And so they can't test all of them, or they can't test from the same bottle. So they spend a bunch of money. They test their supplements. They trace back to everything that they've taken. They can't figure out anywhere where this this substance came from. Um, those athletes are in, you know, they have in a very difficult situation under the anti-doping rules as they exist now, um, and a lot of them end up with two-year sanctions. But the way that the code was written in draft two, it looked like a lot of those athletes were, you know, now they're going to end up with four-year sanctions. And I think that the the revisions in the third draft attempt to address that by, you know, for example, in in uh, 10.2.1, it says that the the uh, penalty is four years if. If, if, if there's not a specified substance involved, unless the athlete can establish that the violation was not intentional. Now, it used to say in draft two was neither intentional nor reckless. And the reckless part to me was really concerning because, you know, an anti-doping organization could say, well, you know, you are reckless because you took supplements or you are reckless because you took 15 supplements. Yeah. Um, so now 
it, there's an intentionality uh, requirement. Although, if you're dealing with non-specified substances, the burden is on the athlete to establish that the violation was not intentional. So, you know, how that is interpreted by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, to me, is going to really determine whether the intent of, of the rules is, is followed in that, you know, we're trying to, to distinguish between intentional cheaters and those that aren't. And if you take my hypothetical athlete who comes in and says, um, I swear I didn't take anything, here's all the steps I went to to try to figure out what caused it, but I just don't know. Um, is that going to be enough for the athlete to meet their burden of, of proving that the positive test wasn't intentional or that their ingestion of the substance wasn't intentional? Take it one step further. Say the athlete does all those same things and says, and I took a polygraph test and I passed it. You know, is that going to be enough? So, the, you know, it's going to take a while for this to sort itself out. Uh, that's still potentially problematic depending on how it's interpreted by the arbitrators. You know, if you look at, for example, the way that the arbitration system, particularly CAS, has interpreted the current specified substance rule. The current rule says, you know, like we talked about, for these substances, your penalty is zero to two years if you meet certain requirements. And those requirements are generally you have to, the athlete has to establish that they didn't take the substance with the intent to enhance their performance or to mask the use of other performance-enhancing substances. And what's happened over time and is sort of a split of cases. You know, there's one line of cases that says, you know, your intent – well, let me back up a little bit. It's easier to describe if I, if I give a hypothetical. And this, is, this has come up in, in supplement cases a lot. So, and use your methylhexanamine cases as an example because this is where most of them have come up. Athlete takes a supplement um, that says it's, you know, for energy or whatever – and it, it lists the ingredients, and one of the ingredients is geranium stem oil. And the athlete had no idea that that was methylhexanamine and had no idea that it was banned. So there's one line of cases that says if the athlete didn't know that geranium stem is methylhexanamine, then they didn't take the prohibited substance with the intent to enhance performance, and therefore they are entitled to this other sanction range of zero to two years as opposed to two years with the possibility of reducing it. Then there was another line of cases that came along which says that, no, the, the inquiry is, did you take the supplement with the intent to enhance your performance? So if you take an energy drink that you don't realize contains a banned substance and say you take it right before your competition, then they, the, the argument would be, well, you use the energy drink to enhance your performance, and therefore you you do not get the broader sanction range. It's two years with the possibility of reduction. That latter set of cases seems to be winning out. I think it's the wrong line of cases because, again, if you go back to the intent of the code to distinguish between intentional and unintentional uh, cases, or intentional doping and unintentional positives, saying, well, you took a supplement with the intent to enhance your performance, 
and therefore you intended to cheat, to me is a big stretch. Well, there's an interesting discussion there, isn't there, just about if you start to look at financial doping and other areas as well, everything you do effectively should be in order to enhance your performance. Right. I mean, if you... You know, if you take a nap in the middle of the day it's, uh, and you're working out in the morning and the afternoon, you take a nap so that you can have a better workout in the afternoon, that's with the intent to enhance your performance. I mean, if you stay hydrated, if you go to altitude, I mean, it basically everything that an elite athlete does is to enhance their performance. So to me, to put the to put the issue on that as opposed to, well, did you take the specific prohibited substance with the intent to enhance your performance sort of misses the mark. One thing I'm, I'm sort of happy with as I read through the third draft of the code is I think they've fixed that because if you look at the new specified substance rule, which is now, you know, I hate the numbering system, but it's 10.5.1.1. So now instead of saying that the athlete has to establish no intent to enhance performance, it says where the anti-doping rule violation involves a specified substance and the athlete or other person can establish no significant fault or negligence, then the, the sanction ranges from a warning up to two years. Mm. So to me, that's a good change because yeah. we won't have to deal with this split of cases and arguing in every case, well, Oliveira's right, no, Fago's right. I mean, it's it, it, it deals with it. It takes that... that ambiguous issue out and so the issue now will be well were you significantly at fault can i ask you what if you've given this any consideration which is an area that that interests me i spoke to david hammond about it when i interviewed him a few weeks back now and that was the prohibited association the prohibited association rule is um it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because if I read it correctly, uh, the the athlete has to know that the person they're associating with is banned, right? I think so, but I think by knowing it means I think they if they're notified as well. So if they're notified right. by WADA or by the, uh, an anti-doping any other anti-doping uh, right. organization. Right, um, so it says the anti-doping organization has to use reasonable efforts to advise. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I suppose that it, I mean, on the one hand, it 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 addresses WADA's problem, which is that they they really have no authority. To use a, a current example, a physical therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not, you know, you don't have a, a license with any international federation and you're not part of any club. Um, so, you know, anti-doping organization can ban you. Well, so what? You say, well, I don't care. Uh, it has no effect on me. I'll keep doing my job. So now they've, they've essentially said, well, they, we recognize that we can't enforce it against these people that aren't really a part of our world. So the only way we can enforce it is uh, by putting the, the burden on the athletes. Um, so, I mean, you know, so long as there's clear notice and there's a clear amount of time for athletes to cease their association, um, I suppose it's like any other rule. Um, if you're 
not allowed to associate with somebody that's been banned and you have noticed that the person is banned and you're given a sufficient time to um, cease the, the association, then you know, the athletes arguably have agreed to the rules. And as long as it's, it's dealt with fairly, I, I don't see that as any bigger problem than any of the other rules. So, so through the through the the revision process, it sounds you sound quite positive about it. And it seems like Wada have, have listened to the various stakeholders because that was one of the criticisms that I remember when I first started uh, getting into sort of sports law as such and anti-doping. Uh, people were were very critical of Wada of sometimes being a bit too heavy-handed and not listening to. Um, in particular athletes but it seems that mm-hmm. this is something that they've learned from and they seem to be engaging more with all, all the various stakeholders yeah and I think um, I mean fortunately as the anti-doping uh, programs become more developed you know there's there's now conferences where these things can be raised and reported because WADA essentially as far as I can tell, they only take input from their stakeholders. So, you know, they're not calling me and saying, I know you've represented hundreds of athletes um, and, you know, you're very familiar with the code. What areas in this draft concern you? I don't think they're reaching out to uh, specific attorneys that are representing athletes on a, on a daily basis. I mean, there's not a whole lot of them, so it wouldn't <laughs> take a lot for them to reach out, but I don't think they're doing it. But at least now, as opposed to on the last run through, you know, there are forums like the Tackling Doping and Sport Conference or you know, podcasts like yours where these concerns can be raised and they can get back to WADA. And and clearly they've they've listened to some of them. I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but I am I am encouraged by the changes I've seen between draft two and draft three. I've been quite surprised, really, from the feedback from from uh, this version that it has been quite like, overwhelmingly positive. Um, yeah, I, was I mean, to me, there there is still there's one or two areas I think that are still really troubling. Um, Which are? Uh, I mean, the main one to me is the Article 10.9, the repayment of cost award, cost awards. Yeah. Um, because. First of all, the way it's written, it basically it says that if if there's a cost award against an athlete or they have to they forfeited prize money, they can't return to competition uh, until they pay it. But they can if they can demonstrate that it would be too big of a financial burden, then it says that they can submit a payment plan to CAS for approval. I mean that last part is clearly to deal with the Methuselah problem, but I just wonder how that's going to be administered. Yeah. <laughs> How exactly is the athlete going to go back to CAS and is CAS going to say, we're happy to uh, to look at your payment plan, but we're not going to do it for free. So there's going to be a fee yeah. associated with that. And, you know, the fee issue with CAS is one that is a huge problem now that's not being addressed. A lot of anti-doping cases that used to be free, the parties now have to pay the costs. You know, because it used to be if it was an international-level athlete, uh, that uh, doping appeals, at least as far as arbitration costs, uh, were free to were free to the parties. Now, unless it's an appeal from a decision made by an international federation, which is not very many, 
and seemingly completely random as to uh, which international federations do first instance hearings and even when they do, what countries they do it for. It's not at all uniform. So now you have a situation where the parties are being asked to pay significant costs, you know, in excess of 30,000 Swiss francs. So if CAS starts awarding as part of these arbitration awards, you know, the party that win, if they require the losing party to reimburse for all of the arbitration costs, then it, all of a sudden this cost issue is a much bigger one than it's been for years. And so how that's going to be administered to me is a is a big concern. Um, it is interesting that also in 10.10 it says that Recovery of costs or, or financial sanctions may only be imposed where the principle of proportionality is satisfied. So, I mean, I wonder if that means that in the CAS proceeding itself, if now CAS is going to be required to consider proportionality evidence and arguments <clears throat> before even issuing cost awards. So this whole cost issue, I think, is going to complicate things and could create problems for for athletes. I mean, I'll give you an example. Take an athlete who at the national uh, federation level is exonerated, uh, and then it's appealed by the international federation and say that CAS says, okay, the parties have to pay the arbitration costs, and so it's 30,000 euros, for example, and, and even say that the, the international federation that appealed advances all of those costs, but then say CAS reverses it and says, no, you shouldn't have, have been exonerated. You should have been suspended for a year. And because the International Federation won, you, athlete, have to pay the arbitration costs, even though you're not the one that made the decision in the first place. So all of a sudden the athlete gets hit with a 30,000-plus Swiss franc cost award, um, and, and they can't pay it. It came up, I think, at a player contracts conference a while ago, about the cost of arbitration and cost of going to CAS. You know, and this is and this is the trouble. The more, I guess the they've become a victim of their success in that regard. That they've they've got a greater workload. They have to be more expedient with their judgments, etc. And therefore, mm -hmm. the cost goes up. But that that doesn't help the athlete, or some of the international federations or national federations for that matter, who who aren't all uh, endowed with a lot of money. Um, right. And, and was there anything else? That was the main one. I mean, the only other, I would say the last one that's slightly concerning to me is uh, this new Rule 2.9, which uh, creates an anti-doping rule violation for complicity in an anti-doping rule violation. And my concern there is, you know, it basically says you, you create, it's an independent violation to, among other things, cover up or any other type of complicity involving an anti-doping rule violation. So if you have a situation where you have an aggressive anti-doping organization that's trying to build a non-analytical case and say they go to an athlete who didn't even dope but was on a team with, with the person that mm. the anti-doping organization believes doped, and they say, you need to tell us everything you know, and if you don't, then we're going to charge you even though you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, hopefully they'll say we would never do that. Yeah. But uh, but the, I guess the counter-argument would be that why wouldn't they? I'm being playing devil's advocate here, but why wouldn't you, if if one of your colleagues have, has doped and you know that they've doped, your former teammates sorry, has doped and you know they have, why wouldn't you just 
spill the beans in them. Well, I mean, you you always can, but the question is, should you be required to, and should you be penalised if you don't, if you yourself did nothing wrong? But if you know that something was wrong, so you right. you know that you you were you were basically, and I guess using their terms, complicit in the cheating. Therefore, you were depriving other people of prize money or of a space in a team or or taking taking sponsorship money from sponsors, for example, or whatever it may be. Um, and you and you knew that these guys were doing it, and you could have been the whistleblower. You could have said something. You didn't. Um, or you have the opportunity at the right time to then say something. Why wouldn't you, if you're being pressed for that information already? Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm like I said, you certainly can. I yeah. just, I'm not sure that you should be forced to, under penalty of being sanctioned yourself, if you don't, if you yourself, I mean, say you're a young athlete on a new team, and you know, you move away from home, and you get there, and all of a sudden you see that the stars on the team are doping. Um, but everybody's keeping quiet about it, and you say, well, you know, I'm new here. I'm just trying to get into the sport. I have no interest in doping myself, but, you know, I'm not going to be the one to speak up. I think it's a lot to ask. I mean, if the person wants to, absolutely, they they have the opportunity to be the whistleblower, but it's to me it, it seems a little unusual to say you have to be a whistleblower. And if you're not a whistleblower, then we're going to penalize you. Yeah. Even even though other, even though you did nothing wrong. Um, yeah. I mean, hopefully, I'm reading too much into it. <laughs> <laughs> that was Howard Jacobs, the athlete's lawyer, talking about the third draft of the revised Wilder Code. And don't forget, for all your expert commentary and analysis on the latest issues and legal developments in the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on Twitter at Law in Sport or go to our YouTube channel, Law in Sport TV.